This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you this morning, this afternoon. Um, we're pleased, uh, my wife and I are pleased to be able to offer assistance to your pastor in whatever way we can. Today is show and tell day, so give me just a minute here. That's not what I was going to show you, but. <laughs> Anybody who knows me at all uh, knows that I have a, a thing for flashlights. Now, just in case you think I'm joking or exaggerating, I thought I'd bring a few. That was my grandfather's flashlight. I can remember him using that when I was a little boy. This is the best flashlight you can buy at Costco. And I bet you I have one that you've never seen before. How do you like this? Oops, sorry, I think I just blinded the, the people in the sound booth. The spots do go away after a while, I promise. <laughs> I. Um, you know, the thing that's funny about it is, is that I have such a thing for flashlights and have had for, I think, all of my life that, um, that when I go through Costco or Walmart or, or Lowe's or Home Depot, when I go by the flashlight display, I at least slow down, you know. Just look over to see if there's anything I haven't seen before, and if not, I just I keep walking. Uh, it got to the point to where somebody asked me how many flashlights I had, and I told them the honest truth is I don't know anymore. I, uh, I kind of lost track, and uh, one time I was in, uh, I think, Lowe's and walked by a display where they had five flashlights, five LED flashlights in a case for $15, and I bought it. I left it in the truck, in my pickup truck, for about two weeks before I had the courage to bring it into the house because it was going to be hard to explain why I needed five more flashlights, and I just, I, I just you know, I, I left it there, and I finally brought it in and kind of threw it on the bed and looked at my wife and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I just couldn't not buy it, you know. It's not that I am afraid of the dark, but the truth of the matter is that I don't really like it. Um, you know, I, it's not that I have a thing about flashlights, it's that I have a thing about light. And, uh, and I don't particularly like the darkness. You know, when we first moved into Florida and we moved to Apopka, um, I, took, I went into the garage and put uh, four fluorescent light fixtures in the garage. And I didn't realize how bright it was until one, one, one day at about dusk, my wife and I went out for a walk around the neighborhood. And we walked out the front door and went to the right and went up all the way around the neighborhood and came, we come down a little hill as we come to our house. And we come down the hill and the, the, this half of the neighborhood is just illuminated like a, a beacon, you know. And it's, as I get to the top of the hill and I start walking down that I realize that I had left my garage door open, you know, and it was just beaming out that side of the house. And I had a motion sensor light up on the top near the, the roof and my neighbor finally came over and said, you know, Eric, he says, that, that light's awfully bright. <laughs> so I wound up disconnecting it so that it wouldn't uh, bug him anymore. It's not like I say that I, I'm not afraid of the dark, but I won't pretend that I like it. And the more lights there are in a place, the more I enjoy that place. Uh, and I know it sounds a little obsessive. It's funny what happens to you when darkness is used as punishment. 
When I was uh, four years old, I would be, I, I can remember being as young as four and being locked in the basement in the dark for punishment, and I would sit at the top of the stairs and uh, wait to be let out. And so I know where the obsession comes from. But we are at a point where I can even laugh a little bit at the obsession, you know, that, that uh, it's still, you know, it's still one of those things when I walk through the store and I know the flashlight display is coming, I try to look the other way so that I can get to what I'm supposed to be doing and get out of the store. And I've often thought, you know, it's funny because uh, at Christmas time, I, as much as I have a thing for flashlights, I have a thing for Christmas lights. And uh, our house is one of those houses that kind of, you know, when, when I throw on the switch, everybody's lights dim a little bit, you know. <laughs> Somebody walked by the other day and ran into my wife, went, ran into Sandy out in the front yard and stopped and said, oh, you're at a house with all the lights at Christmas time, you know. And every year I think, well, maybe I won't do it again, but, you know, we do it anyhow. You know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful for the fact that our God is a God of light, not of darkness. I find it interesting that the very, thing, the very first thing that God created was light. And um, I know that the next thing that he created was darkness. He differentiated the light from the darkness. But the darkness that was part of creation was not a darkness to be feared. It was a darkness that, that, that uh, revealed his glory and his honor. And I will concede that the darkness brings one thing that I'm also, one other thing that I'm also obsessed with, that can only be seen in the darkness, and that is that I love the stars. I love to go out and look at the stars and, and look up into the sky. And in God's original design, darkness only revealed a greater level of his power and his authority. That we can look up into the stars and see that it was his voice that brought all of this into existence. And, and perhaps the darkness still does reveal his power. Maybe it's that, that in the darkest moments of light that we can clearly see God's providences. We can clearly see his hand at work. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? But there is an evil darkness. It's born of sin. It is the trademark of Satan's kingdom. It is a darkness that is, that is filled with fear. It is the substance of every evil and hateful thing. Jesus came to dispel the darkness. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced to us in these words. John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say that the darkness couldn't overcome the light. In the battle between light and dark, light always wins. Light always wins. Jesus himself would later say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And I take particular comfort in the fact that wherever Jesus is, there is light. Wherever Jesus is, there is light. Which brings me to another point. The passage we read earlier for the scripture, Matthew 5:14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the first passage, he says he was the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. But in this passage, he tells us that we are the light of the world. Jesus is the source of all the light. Jesus is the source of all the light. We have no ability to generate anything on our own. We are mere reflectors of the glory that is found in Jesus Christ, that shines on us from Jesus Christ. In the, it, there, I have a bookmark that I'd like to have passed out to you. Who has those bookmarks? Can you get those and bring them? Um, this is, I tell people that you can, get to the, you can get to heaven on the Bible alone. You know that? 
But if you have the Bible and Desire of Ages, you can get there in style. <laughs> Desire of Ages, I have learned more profound theology from the book Desire of Ages than from any other book I have in my library outside of the Bible. But in that book, Desire of Ages, is one of thousands of incredible quotes that talks about what it means to be light. And I thought I would give this to you so you could take it home, so you could stick it in your Bible and refer to it. Go ahead and, how are we doing getting them passed out? I want you to see it and read it along with me. Desire of Ages, by the way, if you haven't read it, um, it is an incredible book. And uh, it, it, teach, it has taught me so much a basic understanding of how God relates to his children and how he relates to those who are hurt and wounded. And, and it's an incredible book. But I want this, I wanted you to hear this comment. Is it on the, okay, you can see it up here too. Here's what this, this paragraph says in Desire of Ages. True character is not shaped from without and put on. It radiates from within. If we wish to direct others in the path of righteousness, the principles of righteousness must be enshrined in our own hearts. Our profession of faith may proclaim the theory of religion, but it is our practical piety that holds for the word of truth. Now listen to these phrases, because she's going to list about five things. The consistent life, in other words, your consistent devotion to God, your consistent living for Him. The consistent life, the holy conversation. What kind of words come out of your mouth? The holy conversation, the unswerving integrity, the person who stands for what is right no matter what it costs him, the person who says, this is wrong and I will not do it even if it benefits me and puts money in my pocket, I am going to stand for what is right. The consistent life, the holy conversation, the unswerving integrity, the active, benevolent, or loving spirit, the godly example, these are the mediums through which light is conveyed to the world. It is your life, how you live, the kinds of things that come out of your mouth, your integrity as a person, your honesty, the devotion and commitment you have to serving God. These are the things that will communicate light to the world around us. In Matthew 24, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about his return. He talks about the signs of his return. He talks about the need to be watchful and ready. And then in chapter 5, he gives us a parable parable that we're familiar with that describes a particular group of people. The parable describes those who are waiting for the return of Jesus. Matthew 25 verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. From an outward appearance, there doesn't appear to be much difference between the five wise and the five foolish virgins. In Christ's object lessons, it says that the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They're not hypocrites. They have a respect for the truth. They have taught others 
but they have not surrendered themselves to the working of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they have been willing even to share the truth, you know, but they have not yet allowed the Holy Spirit to work in them. They have not allowed the old nature to be broken up and changes to be made in their own heart. They're like the stony ground hearers. Seed falls upon the ground and it springs up very quickly because it has very little root, but then it fails to grow and thrive because it can't put down very deep roots. Christ's object lesson says, the Spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent. Did you hear that? Do you understand how critical that is? The Spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent, implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They do not know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. Their service to God degenerates into a form. Paul, when he talks about these people, he says, In the last days perilous tides shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There is a difference between knowing the truth and letting the Holy Spirit make changes, changes in us through the truth. In the parable, all the ten virgins went out to meet the bridegrooms. All had lamps and vessels for oil, and for a time you couldn't have seen much of a difference between the two groups. Among those who are waiting for Jesus to come, there will appear to be no differences. All have a knowledge of Bible teachings. All have heard the messages of the soon return of Jesus. It is the delay that divides the two groups apart. In, both, in the parable, both groups slumber, they both fall asleep, but there is a difference between the two. How many of you have ever read any books by George Knight? Let me see your hands. If you've, if you've seen some of his books, just, just a few of you. George Knight is now, he, he, he's been a professor at Andrews University for quite a number of years, now he's retired. Um, he writes in one of his books about people within the Seventh-day Adventist Church that he calls cultural Adventists. There are those who are Adventists not because they necessarily believe everything, but because they are most comfortable in the culture of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's what they're familiar with. There are those who are cultural Adventists, and there are those who see truth in God's Word, and they are changed by it. The Holy Spirit has taken the truth that they have heard, and, they, and He has used it to bring life to their heart. Even during the delay of Jesus' coming, they have studied to understand and know God. They've been seeking His presence, and, and He has been blessing in their lives. They have been praying daily for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to make them lights for Christ. One group is seeking an abiding relationship with Jesus through His Word and through the Holy Spirit, and the other group is content to show up and go through the motions. I'm not making a judgment because I don't know anybody here. But that's the difference between these two groups. In the parable, it's at midnight that the cry goes out that the long-delayed bridegroom is on his way. It's then that the foolish virgins realize their problem. All ten of the virgins have lamps. And by the way, I brought a lamp with me too. Where is it here? All ten of the virgins have lamps. All of them have vessels for oil. And all of the virgins, when the cry goes out that the bridegroom is on his way, begin to trim the wicks. And it's then that five of them realize that they're out of oil, that they have run out. And they frantically go to their friends asking for oil. And they're refused. One commentator that I looked at kind of made the, the statement in his book that he thought it was a little out of character for 
the followers of Jesus to refuse to help others. But I think he missed the point. You see, no one can experience spiritual growth for you. No one can experience spiritual growth for you. There, is a time, there was a time in Christian history when it was believed that the saints had extra grace that they could share, that they were so holy and that they had done such great things. They had performed what were called works of supererogation. You remember that term. Um, that's a, a theological term, probably one of the only ones I remember from school. But, but you can remember that one, supererogation. They thought that these saints had done so many great works of grace that they had extra that they could share with you, you know, that they could give you a little bit of their grace. That's what made them saints, and that's why you prayed to them. They had earned enough grace that they could share with others. Sorry, it doesn't work. That's not the way it works. No one can have a spiritual life for you. Do you understand that? No one can have a spiritual life for you. The opening of the heart to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is an individual matter. Now it's true that our prayers, we can pray for people and God will answer our prayers as far as he can, but he will not interfere with a person's free will. So we can pray for people, but that person still has to want to surrender their hearts to Jesus. God will bring greater influence to bear upon them, but he will not compel those that we are praying for to receive him if it is not their desire. While he hears our prayers, he still respects the freedom of every individual to make their own choice. No one can be spiritual for you. No one can be spiritual for you. It is an individual work that you must attend to. I can come and encourage. Your pastor can come and encourage and teach and exhort. But only you can determine whether any of this matters by how you respond to it. Only you can make the decision as to how this is going to go. A knowledge of the truth isn't enough. It isn't enough. Unless the Holy Spirit is invited into your heart and asked to use the truth that you know to change the way you live and to bless you, all of this is for nothing. All of this is for nothing. Simply knowing the truth isn't enough. Even Satan knows the truth, but it has no power to change a heart that is hardened in rebellion. It is the truth taken into the heart and energized by the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. And by the way, the parable reveals that the Lord intends that we will be channels of light through which his light can shine to others. Our first and most important witness is the witness of our lives and how we are changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants to change us so much by his presence in our hearts that others are going to take notice and wonder what's different about you. Something's happened to you. You're different. You, you don't talk the same way anymore. You don't act the same way anymore. Now, I want to show you something here if I can. Um, there's a couple of little things. I've really worked hard at trying to understand the whole issue of the lamp and the oil and the whole thing and what they symbolize. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the lamp itself is a symbol of what? What do you remember what the lamp is? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 tells us that the lamp is the word of God. Okay? The oil which is poured into the lamp is, um, is used to symbolize what? The Holy Spirit. Who said Holy Spirit? Somebody said the Holy Spirit. Zechariah in a vision has shown a bowl in which there are seven lamps in it. 
and they are fed by two golden pipes that come from olive trees on either side of the bowl. When Zechariah is asked what all of this means, the answer is given by an angel, and it says, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So you have the word of God that is represented by the lamp, that is filled by the Holy Spirit represented by the oil. Do you understand that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God? It is one of the the greatest deceptions of Satan that uh, he gives what appears to be the infilling of the Holy Spirit only to lead that person away from the clear teachings of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, if it leads you away from the Word of God, it isn't the Holy Spirit, I can promise you. Because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to transform lives. He takes the Word of God and empowers it in us for change. He never works apart from His Word. But there's still one more piece. None of this works without this. And that is the wick. And I got to wondering what the wick represented. Thought about it for quite a while and then it finally dawned on me. You know what the wick is? It's the heart. The human heart. The wick symbolizes the heart. We aren't the lamp. The Word of God is so much more than we could ever be. God has chosen to reveal His will for us in His Word, through His Word. It is in His Word that we learn of Him. It It is in His Word that we learn about His character and His purposes for us. It is in His Word that we understand His will for us. We learn everything we need to know from His Word. By drinking in his word, we come to understand him. We cannot be the oil because the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. He is the power and the potential for change in us. There is nothing in us that can make even the smallest of changes. Without the Holy Spirit, we are hopelessly entangled in our sins. But you put the oil in the lamp and, um, and nothing happens without this little thing right here. The human heart soaking up the oil and beginning to make changes. The wick symbolizes the heart placed in the Word of God. It's burying our heart in the Word of God, saturated by the oil of the Holy Spirit and ignited by, what do you think it's ignited by? What lights the wick? What is it? I can't hear you. The fire? What, is, what do you think happens in the human heart? I'll tell you what ignites the wick. You know what ignites the wick? Love for Jesus. You read the story of the life of Christ. You see what he did for you. What he did for so many other people. And the love born in my heart for Jesus gives, gives the spark that lights the oil that, that is embedded in the word in my heart. And I come to fire. I come to life. My life becomes a fire for Jesus. The wick is the heart sparked by our love for Jesus that makes us possible to be lights for him. True Christianity will be manifested in the lives of those who after beholding Jesus in his word say, I want that. I want to be like him. I want my life to be different. They find the principles of righteousness in his life revealed in his life attractive. They want that. They want that. They want what Jesus had. They want that purity of heart. They want that purity of mind. They're longing to be like him. They long for those, those things to be present in their, their hearts. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Their selfish nature, their scrambling, self-serving tendencies have been subdued by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they long to reveal the compassion and grace of Christ in their lives. 
As they meditate upon the life of their Savior revealed in the Bible, there's born in them a desire to be a channel of grace to others. One more thing. You know, it's always bothered me that it always seemed rather arbitrary that some had more of the oil, some had more of the Holy Spirit than others. And then it finally dawned on me. You know the reason why some had more oil, some had more of the Holy Spirit than others? It was because some wanted more of the Holy Spirit than others. Some simply wanted more. They had more oil because they kept asking for more oil. They kept speaking to the Spirit, give me more. I want more of you. I want to be more like Jesus. I want my life to be more in harmony with your will. Dear Holy Spirit, come dwell in my heart and make me a light for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. At the end of time, there will be those who will have more of the Spirit because they were always reaching for more. They were always asking for more, greater measures. They weren't content with the status quo. They were always asking for more. The book Acts of the Apostles, in the chapter early in the book that deals with the Holy Spirit, it talks about the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, they are in the upper room and they have been praying. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And the book Acts of the Apostles make this, makes this statement on page 50. It says, The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. It's not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension, and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, and boy, we can be masters at the minors, can't we? We can get lost on the small stuff. Forget all about the major things. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. The book goes on then to ask this question. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it, pray for it, and preach concerning it? Good question, isn't it? If it is the one blessing that brings everything else along with it, then that is our first priority, is to seek renewal and revival with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is our first responsibility. We know the truth, but I'm telling you that the truth by itself will change nothing. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the only power, He is the only one who can take the truth that we know and make it become light for life, not only in our own hearts, but in the hearts of others. Ten virgins all looked alike. They all professed to be waiting for Jesus. But five of them were constantly seeking greater and greater measures, measures of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's what we ought to be doing every single day, is seeking for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, that this is the only way things are going to change. Years ago, I preached a series of sermons that were inspired by an old professor of mine by the name of George Rice uh, at Andrews University. He was a, a teacher not only in college, but just before I went to the seminary, he went to the seminary as a professor. And he taught me the importance of praying for the Holy Spirit. And I can remember at least twice, in, first in one church and in another, I would begin to do this series of, of um, sermons on the praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I would have two responses to it. I'd have a people that were 
that were telling me about what was going on in their life, that things were changing. And I would have people that would get really steamed and say, we're not supposed to, we're, we're not supposed to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until this and this and this and this happens. And, when, and I would tell them that, listen, I'm no expert in the chronology of how all of this happens. All I know is that when I get people praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit in their own heart, things happen. Things happen, and no lie. We were, we were beginning to do this series, and I would have people come and tell me, Pastor, I've been, my husband and I haven't been getting along for years. He, she said, you know, I've been praying that God would give me the gift of the Holy Spirit, and something is changing in me and how I'm relating to it, and, and our relationship is changing. And I had, uh, no lie, two or three incidents of people who walked in, one, one person walked into the door of the church one Sabbath, and at the end of the service came up and said, you know, I've been walking by this church for 15 years. I live just down the road. And he says, I don't know why I never stopped in before today, um, but I just felt impressed today that, to come through the door and find out what this was all about. All I can tell you is that when you begin to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, something's going to change. It's going to change you. I made a decision a long time ago that I would begin every single day by asking for the Holy Spirit. And here's the appeal that I want to make to you. Three things. That you make time to take your heart and embed it in the Word of God every day. Um, If you're not having enough time in the morning to do a few minutes with God's Word, then reschedule your day so that you can get up in time and spend a little time with God in His Word, because this is where He reaches us, here in this book. So I, I urge you to take time to bury your heart deep in the Word of God. And I will ask you to do this. Join with me by beginning every day, and when you pray, say, Lord, please give me again the gift of your Holy Spirit to dwell in my heart today, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, your Spirit in my heart, give me an, an obedient heart to you a heart that listens to you. But dwell in my heart today, please. And the third thing is that you will let the Holy Spirit so saturate your heart and take the truth that you're learning from God's Word and make you a light. If you're expecting the Holy Spirit and you have no interest in communicating with people around you about the grace of God, then you don't need the Holy Spirit. Because the reason why light is given is for others to find Jesus. And He intends to work through us in such a way that he can take what we have gleaned from the Word of God, what we have understood from God's Word, what we have been touched and moved by in the Scriptures, and take the Holy Spirit and saturate our hearts and and through the love of Jesus to ignite us and make us flames for his kingdom. And so, spend time in his Word. Ask him every day for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and make a commitment that you will let the Holy Spirit take God's word as it's embedded in your heart and make you a light for your neighbor, for your co-workers, for your family. Anybody interested in, in joining me with that? You willing to do that? How many are willing to stand and make a commitment and say, this is what I'm going to do? Three things. I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to bury my heart in his word every day. I'm going to ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit takes the truth in my heart and makes me a light for those around me.